You are listening to a pleasure podcast. For more from our sex podcast collective, visit pleasurepodcasts.com. Welcome back to Private Parts Unknown, a podcast that explores love and sexuality around the world. I'm Courtney Kosak. And I'm Sophia Alexandra. And this is not how we meant to go to Ukraine on the podcast. No, definitely not. Definitely not. So as I'm sure all of our privates are aware, there is since last Thursday, basically, been a major conflict, a Russian invasion of Ukraine that seems totally senseless. So we thought, you know, that's where Sophia is from. And it was in our queue to be one of our next spots that we hit up and we were so excited about it. And it has just been heartbreaking to watch. And I'm sure quadruply or more so for Sophia. So we thought this would be the perfect time to give you guys a little bit more cultural context and really just do the only thing that we can and that's send our love to Ukraine. And I will also be um, posting resources and organizing a comedy fundraiser. So stay tuned basically on my social media. It's the Sophia, T-H-E-S-O-F-I-Y-A. So Sophia, you shared a thread of things about your homeland in the first day or so of this, of Putin invading the Ukraine, and it really resonated with people and I think gave them a lot more, you know, familiarity with the place. And I, I do want to dive into that stuff, but maybe first you can explain why you guys left in the first place. Um, yeah, so I think this is actually a great place to start because I think it'll clear up some of the confusion and sometimes questions people have about identity from that part of the world. So essentially, I am a Ukrainian Jew. When I was born in uh, Ukraine, it was part of the USSR. This is early 80s. Yes. Um, so I was born in 82. So basically, we moved to Los Angeles in 94. So before we moved, uh, USSR split, obviously, because of... Uh, um, <laughs> I don't need to explain because of why. <laughs> I think you guys know why. Well, the wall fell and that precipitated independence, right? In a lot of the formerly USSR countries. Right. I think maybe not everyone knows that it's not like everyone joined the USSR like really gladly. Totally. <laughs> it <was> like, <laughs> awesome. We're Russian now. Woo! Fuck our language and culture. It's secondary. Woo! <laughs> like, people were not doing that. So I think it's also allowed for a very long time for the world to view Russia as this giant monolith. Mm -hmm. When, in fact, that was the USSR. And it actually is made up of a lot of different places. So the important thing to think about is when you might like go on my social media or listen to my jokes or listen to any other people who are from that part of the world who say they're Russian and then you find out that they're Ukrainian, you're like, wait, I thought that was different. So here's why that can be. One, as a Jew, when I was born, you were not considered to be either Ukrainian or Russian. On your birth certificate under the fifth line, which is called Patagrafa, they would say Jew. So if you were Ukrainian, it would say Ukrainian. If you were Belarusian, it would say Belarusian. So the only people that did not get to belong to any country were Jews. So that is where some of the identity um, stuff comes in. So the short answer to why we left is because forever in that country, we thought we would be Jews and not Jewish Ukrainians or Ukrainian Jews or whatever, at least I mean, I was 11. I was not making a lot of decisions back then. Right. <laughs> but my mom and um, my family thought that it would be safer for us if we left. And that does not mean that I do not love where I'm from and that I consider it to be like a dangerous place or something. 
my memories of it are incredible. Just because there's poverty or other stuff that might be negative about a place does not mean that that place sucks or that place is overall bad or anything like that. So one of the reasons that I wanted to do the thread is I wanted people to just think of the actual things they have no idea about that are just really little that make a place. Because mm-hmm. a place isn't just land, it's not a map. It's traditions, it's the people, it's the things that are really specific, which is why one of the reasons that we do this podcast, Courtney and I, is the only way that you can really understand a place is travel. And whenever we do, our consciousness just expands by so much. So anyway, as someone that grew up in USSR and then it became Ukraine, Odessa, which is where I'm from, is a city that's on the Black Sea and it's a port city. And Russian is the primary language spoken. But here's a thing that I mentioned in my thread. Most Ukrainians speak and understand Russian, but it doesn't go the other way. And the two languages share about 60% of vocabulary. So you can understand how it skews a little bit language statistics. Because if you've had to learn the language of the person that took over your country, of course, it doesn't go the other way. Just a quick question on that, though. So like Mm -hmm. the overlap, which is what I thought that, you know, there was a lot of commonalities as well. So with the 60%, even if someone didn't speak both fluently, would you kind of understand in a broken way the other language? I mean, I learned Ukrainian when I was a kid. So because it was the second language, that's what they referred to it. So we would learn it. So it's hard for me to imagine not knowing the things that I know to try to like zoom out, if that makes sense. But I mean, there's significant words that are really different. Like I'll give you an example, like um, the word for language, for example, in Russian is yazyk. And the word for language in Ukrainian is mova. So as you can tell, no similarities. Gotcha. So there's some cognates. But then there's other words that are like dobre, and that's like good in both languages. So okay, one of the things that I think it might be similar to, someone said it might be like, Brazilian Portuguese and Spanish, Brazilian Portuguese being Ukrainian and Spanish being Russian. Mm-hmm. And then I thought that it might be more like listening to Portuguese from Portugal and Portuguese from Brazil. So the thing that this overlap and this complication in identity means and the thing that it brings forward is that this is not a war where Russians and Ukrainians are trying to fight each other because they hate each other. That is not what's happening. What's happening is this is a dictator's war. And the Russians that are fighting Ukrainians right now mostly do not want to be there. I've seen a ton of social media because, like I said, I speak Russian and Ukrainian, where people not only are dejected as hell when the Ukrainians capture them and they're like, we do not want to be here. Some of them just walk back across the border and abandon their vehicles that are like Mm -hmm. fully manned and have all of their like gas and stuff like that. And they're just young kids. They do not want to be doing this. So for me, I am Russian. I'm Ukrainian. I'm Jewish. I'm all of those things. It depends on when in history... (laughs) you ask and who you ask. So the fact that this is being pitched by Putin as a war that Russia has to fight to avenge Russia against Ukrainians, that is just the most blatant form of propaganda. And that's something that our people have been used to for a really long time. Mm -hmm. And um, you can see the bias in the fact that, for example, when they fail to take over Kiev, all of the Russian newspapers essentially, or not all, but a lot of them put up articles saying like, what a successful takeover, because all of that stuff was already pre-programmed. And then they had to pull it, but it's still cached because, you know, hey, it's the web. So just stuff like that, that you don't really think of, I don't want people to think of Russian people as the enemy. That's not how this works. The person sending them to war is the enemy. So for me, I also don't think that, you know, two wrongs make a right. It's not that there isn't like, you know, Nazi sentiment in Ukraine. But if you're trying to pitch me the idea that there's more of it in Ukraine than in Russia, you're insane. I mean, Ukraine has a Jewish president whose family 
fought in World War II against the Nazis. There's righteous people, what they call righteous Gentiles, which I think is a really weird fucking term. But there's people that save the Jews and people that love the Jews on everyone's side. And to pitch the idea that, you know, Ukrainians hate Jews, like, hey, everyone hates Jews. Like, sorry, sorry, that's just the case. (laughs) And we're not, we should not make broad sweeping generalizations like that. Because if we do, we need to be careful as Americans because what did we have? A synagogue shooting? Okay, how many of those events have been happening in the last four years and more? What about when uh, Americans were openly pro the Nazi party? Not all of them, but a huge segment. People really like to make things black and white, but that's not how it is. So let's be careful when we throw stones at other countries about them being more Nazis. And I'm talking to Putin, uh, more Nazi than you are when you are a KGB agent. So I just really don't think that (laughs) that tactic is really going to work. So yeah, if you want to get to know the news that are really happening, I would suggest you follow Ukrainian outlets. I think Kiev Independent is doing good work. They're doing a great job. They also frequently retweet other organizations that they trust, that they know do good work on the ground. And um, you can also donate to support them. So that stuff will be in our notes. Terrell J. Starr is also a Black journalist that's over there, and he is doing some incredible reporting right now, too. And you know what? He actually is... I just was like, oh, what a man. He normally covers tourism and he's turned into a war reporter. I mean, he's like a scholar of Ukraine, but I was just like, man, what a pivot. Yeah, there's incredible bravery and resiliency and all of this stuff that's being displayed in this conflict by Ukrainians and, of course, their allies, including people of Russia that are protesting. Mm-hmm. I want to talk to you a little bit more about that. Yeah, I just was going to say that protesting is no joke over there. You're willing to die. So yeah, on that note, I want to hear about, I'm sure you have some people that you stay in touch with in the Ukraine. I'm not sure, possibly in Russia too. And of course, you're following the news in both languages. So I just wanted to get a sense because, you know, from my perspective, I've seen a lot of Russian protesting way more than I would imagine or could expect really when it affects your job. You could go to jail. I mean, there's like a huge amount of repercussions that can happen for speaking out against something. And then even some of the, there's like a news organization that's still trying to do some non-biased reporting. So I would love to hear any insight that you have from people that you've talked to over there or more of the news that you've seen and any kind of context that you can share with us. I think you're talking about um, the New Yorker article, right? That focuses um, on the Russian paper. Um, I have seen it on Twitter in, you know, not no, I'm not talking about one specific article. No, because I think they did an in-depth one about Oh, I didn't read that. But yeah, there is supposedly one uh, organization that is still doing their best to report on the situation. Okay, so if you want to get a get a little bit more of an in-depth look, the New Yorker's David Remnick um, did uh, a Q&A with uh, Dmitry Muratov, who is um, the editor of Novaya Gazeta, which means new paper in Russian. And basically, he's like a Nobel-winning... Yeah, he's doing some really good work. Just so you know, it's the same paper that, if you remember, when Anna Politkovskaya was murdered, uh, was shot dead in her building in 2006, she was a journalist for that um, newspaper. Oh. To be reporting independent news right now and to be protesting in Russia is like an incredible act of bravery because... You're risking it multiple times over. This isn't generally a place that has a short memory in terms of revenge. Mm-hmm. So, Clearly, yeah. And when they're protesting, they're letting the media take pictures of their face. So you have to understand how powerful that is. That is going on record. And these people are masters at keeping a file on you, fucking with your life. So this is just incredibly, incredibly brave on, on multiple levels. Well, yeah, Putin's main adversary, 
what's the name of that, the guy that got poisoned? Oh, <laughs> I wanted to say which guy. Because <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, he's literally in Siberia Alexei right now. Navalny, that guy? Yes. Mm-hmm. He got freaking poisoned. Alexei Navalny. Jesus. For going against Putin. Yeah, I mean, he's not the first or the last probably to be uh, fucked up by Putin for very terrible, egomaniacal reasons that have nothing to do with anyone. Also, how rich and powerful does one person need to get? So anyway, the insight in Russian and Ukrainian news about this is that I can share, or at least the sentiment that is popular, is that Putin was vastly underprepared Mm -hmm. for the way that this is going. And also, frankly, for the support and the attention it's getting in the world. So because of that, that's why there is a disconnect between and what the media reported as to what was happening. Not that there wouldn't have been lying anyway, but they didn't expect that people would be social media. Basically, since they failed to take out the communication the way that they were wanting to and tried to, because of that and the lack of that, there's so much social media and underground reporting that's happening. And they can't control the narrative. Yes, and they did not count on that. So because people are still able to send tweets, people are still able to use the internet to publish their articles, uh, people know exactly what's going on. They weren't prepared for that for there to be so much visual and otherwise evidence. So mm-hmm. whereas before, just the way that dictators always do, they would 100% just pitch a story and control it to a degree where that would become the story like they do in China and, uh, you know, other places like that. But in this case, it was too slippery and it got out too fast. And they were not prepared for the fact that the citizens were, you know, just going to mobilize so quickly. You know, they didn't think that when they would go into a place, it would just be Molotov cocktail rain. You know, they just did not think that. And as much as, you know, it pains me when, like, young Russian soldiers are killed because they don't know what the fuck they're doing, and they were they were also sent to a thing they did not want to do, I'm relieved that Ukrainians are able to defend right now. But, you know, just let's be honest, civilians are dying. Yeah. Um, Putin has specifically attacked kindergartens, places like that. Orphanages. Yes. And... Just uh, to think about the fact that I tweeted this too, that the Russian word for peace and the Russian word for world is the same word. It's mir. Oh, that's beautiful. I love that. Like world peace is redundant. Yes, exactly. And Russian doesn't have a... The Russian word for civilian is mirny zhitil. And the root in mirny is mir. So the direct translation is not really civilian, but it's peaceful dweller. So the fact that Russians are literally bombing people, the root of which of their description is the word peace and the word world, it's really heartbreaking. And sometimes it's because of the intermixing and of the cultures, like sometimes it's cousins fighting against cousins and things like that. I mean, really sad. Not sometimes. That's the thing. I think people don't understand how intermarried everybody is. I mean, Zelensky, he's Jewish. He's married to a Ukrainian woman. I mean, a ton of my mom's friends and their friends are are married Russians to Ukrainians and Belarusians and everybody. It's not a separatist place like that. My mom lived in Donetsk for eight years and worked. That's where she met my dad and fell in love. Uh, that's one of the regions that Putin's claiming as independent and annexed. Is that correct? Yes. And my mom loves Donetsk. She's like, it has the most beautiful wide boulevards of all time. She's like, that city is incredible. And, you know, her heart's breaking. She's communicating with her friends. Basically what's happening with my best friend from childhood who lives in Barcelona, but her family's still in Odessa. So, What are you hearing kind of firsthand from those people about the experience? I know we're seeing a lot on social media and in the news, but I'm sure it's terrifying. So one thing is, is a very (laughs) traditional characteristic of (laughs) 
my people, I mean, is that you're not going to get somebody replying, we're scared, things are not good. Oh, really? But I can tell when things are not good because the answers are short. Interesting. So they'll say things like, everything is okay for right now, or we're still hoping for the best. Everyone's okay. So I know things are not good. But I also know that they just have more fucking perseverance and like character to get through this than, yeah, I believe in them. What if you could use science to discover more about your body all year long? Give yourself more clarity and better understand your health and wellness with Everlywell at-home lab tests. And if you make pleasure a priority in your life, your sexual health should also be top of mind. Knowing your STD status protects you and your partners. And now you can discreetly test at home with Everlywell. Everlywell at-home lab tests give you physician-reviewed results and personalized insights so you can take action on your health and wellness all at an affordable and transparent cost. With over 30 tests, you'll be able to choose the ones that make the most sense for you. Food sensitivity, metabolism, sleep and stress, and thyroid are just a few of the many options. And the STD test, obviously our favorite, allows you to test for seven types of STDs, all from the privacy of your own home. And no one's going to have to scream the word gonorrhea at you. (laughs) Here's how it works. Everlywell ships your at-home lab test straight to you with everything you need to do a simple sample collection. Using the prepaid shipping label, mail your test back to a certified lab. In just days, your physician-reviewed results and actionable insights are sent to your device. And you can share the results with your primary care physician to help guide the next steps. Over 1 million people have trusted Everlywell with their at-home lab testing, including me and Cokes. Cokes, what did you think of it? I just did my second Everlywell test. My first test was food sensitivity, and honestly, the results were really helpful in terms of knowing why I might have certain reactions to certain foods. And now I'm doing the women's health test, and I just sent in my sample kit today, so I'm super excited to get the results. It's so easy, honestly. I'm such a fan. It's very nice to not leave your house for doctor shit, I have to be honest. True. And for listeners of the show, Everlywell is offering a special discount of 20% off an at-home lab test at everlywell.com slash private. That's everlywell.com slash private for 20% off your at-home lab test. Everlywell.com slash private. So I just want to mention a quick thing about referring to Ukraine as the Ukraine. I never understood when I moved here. When I would say I'm from Ukraine, people would say the Ukraine. And I was just like, I guess maybe it's an American thing. And I didn't realize that it's actually because Ukraine was not viewed as its own separate country. So people say the Ukraine as a way to delegitimize Ukraine as its own independent place. So just as a little note, uh, it's not, you'll hear people even from where I'm from use that occasionally interchangeably because we don't know sometimes better or it's a mistake or whatever. But just as a conscious thing, I think going forward, just Ukraine if you can. Oh, yeah. I I didn't realize that. I just thought it was how it was. <laughs> you know? Yeah, me too. That's the thing. I mean, if you're raised with that being as the way, you never think like, why? But why would that be like the only country that they put the in front of? You're like, oh, do you want to come to the Mexico? <laughs> no, totally. I mean, now that makes total sense. So I think that's something that we can all take away from this episode is to Knock that shit out. Okay, on that note, can we talk about Zelensky for a second? Because I have never in my lifetime seen a leader, and maybe I'm just ignorant, but truly, I have not seen a leader being like, no, I'm going to stay. I mean, whenever I read about it, it's somebody left with the money and good luck with the Taliban or whatever. I never see somebody that's down to fight like that. I mean, whoa, it's so inspiring. And I am not pro-war in any way, but I mean, he's defending himself and it's incredible. So um, one thing about his leadership has been really incredible. And I more than admire him. I just want to say that it's not true to say that this is unusual because, you know, leaders, Palestinian leaders and 
leaders in other um, places that have been occupied have also been fighting without leaving and losing family, et cetera. I don't think it's rare. I just think it's rare to compare it to the kind of leadership we've seen recently. So I think, and it's also, we're all very Eurocentric and especially America-centric. So I think that colors the perception a little bit. And that I think me and you were talking about earlier in terms of we've seen a lot of fellow activists talk about how there's not as much attention paid when these conflicts don't concern white people or don't concern European countries. And while that is 100% the case, there are a couple of things that are also different about this conflict. One of the major ones being nuclear arms. I think that's huge. And I certainly don't want to downplay any of the other conflicts. And, you know, for a second I got, I you know, I saw a couple tweets like that and I was like, yes, but, and like, I think one of the things is that, like you said, there's nuclear arms and also some of the most insidious, dangerous racism comes from ignorance. And that is totally this. And so I don't want to perpetuate it. But like, as Americans, we have literacy in the world wars, right? That's what we studied in school. You know, World War II makes sense because there was truly a bad guy. And a lot of the other wars don't make sense because we're the bad guy. You know what I mean? And so it's, and there's so much media stuff that makes it hard to understand. And they've been going on for 20 years. I mean, some of them since I was a kid or in high school and like people are right. Like I don't understand it in the same way. So this seems less ambiguous to me. Also, I can imagine my best friend being there, you know, like (laughs) there are some other factors at play. I think more Americans have those kind of ties, but it doesn't mean that it's right that we pay this more attention. And it's it's made me very reflective of like how I can be better, you know, because who wants to think about war all the time? It is one of those things that you're like, oh man, I mean, yes, I want to support the victims of this tragedy and, and I'll do the best I can. But like, as far as following it as like a weekly news story, it's like, kind of too much when there's so much, there's just so much tragedy going on all the time. It's hard to follow everything, but to be better citizens and people and better to people in all conflict zones, we're definitely going to put out a newsletter that shares resources, not just to help people in Ukraine, but to help people in all the active conflict zones right now. Yes, And I want to add that it does not in any way anger me or make me feel like, oh, this is taking away from Ukraine when I see people tweet things like, hey, America's invaded these countries and the list is hella fucking long. And it doesn't offend me when people say, hey, you know, here's another tragedy. Why didn't we pay attention to Syria? Why don't we give a fuck when it's somewhere else? That does not offend me. I don't think that there's a wrong time for those conversations. I think the right time to talk about them is whenever injustice is happening. Mm -hmm. So I don't think there's such a thing as like you're hijacking our pain. I really don't see it that way. It doesn't delegitimize the fact that Ukrainian people are suffering right now, that you're telling me that, yes, Syrian people also suffer and no one gave a fuck. I think that is a completely good time to bring that up. I don't think that we should also be that hard on ourselves for not having the capacity to always help out. So I think let's forgive all the times we don't, but let's really just be more proactive and look forward to helping where we can. Because I think you don't have to beat yourself up and be like, shit, I didn't do anything about Syria. So now Ukraine's really like making me stressed out. So, you know, I'm just not going to follow the news cycle because like I need to turn off the guilt and the shame and the entire thing and the stress of the war in general is just stressing me out. I understand that impulse. 
So instead of like guilt tripping yourself or doing that, I just feel like take a deep breath, be like, you know what? I wasn't around for Syria, but I'm around for this. And hopefully I'll be around for the next thing. Mm -hmm. Um, Sadly, these kind of things happen all the time. And sometimes you have shit going on where you cannot give of yourself. So let's, let's not engage in this kind of beating up and like being overwhelmed by all the tragedy in the world. And let's just focus on the little corner of what we can do in any given moment. I do want to read this tweet from Asal Rod. I hope I'm saying that right. Uh, she is an Iranian scholar and she wrote, it's noteworthy that the difference in how Ukraine is discussed versus endless Western wars in the Middle East and the continuous dehumanizing commentary isn't coming from the fringe. It's the mainstream narrative. There is no post-colonialism while the culture of white supremacy rules. And yes, exactly what you said, Sophia. There's no need to beat yourself up about, you know, there's a lot of sad things going on in the world and we can just do our best. But when we realize that maybe we've been neglectful of certain kinds of conflicts, even because we don't fully understand them or whatever, it's just a good thing to take note of. And you know what I <laughs> I find? If something makes me a little bit defensive in the moment, usually I'm about to learn something from it. So anyway. That is an incredibly true observation. Yeah. Sad, but... <laughs> Uh, Soph, I just learned so much stuff you're going to want to know about squirting. Oh my God. Tell me everything. Where did you learn this? Okay. So there's this site called Beducated. It is like the Netflix of sexual wellness. No joke. They provide techniques and information so that you can level up your love life. And they offer an expert-backed library of courses from Tantra to Kink to explore new practices and upgrade your lovemaking skills. Yes, they believe that sexual happiness is trainable, which I love. And they're just a really cool online course platform that has easy to follow video, audio, and written guides. You get unlimited access to their online courses, plus 100 hours of video and audio content, and tips from world-renowned educators, with new content every week and high-quality streaming on all devices. Yeah, I mean, I am just getting started on Beducated, and I have already learned so much stuff that is taking my relationship and my sex life to the next level. So, privates, here's a hot tip. You can join Beducated for as little as $9.99 per month when you use our code PRIVATE. That's 65% off when you use our coupon code PRIVATE at Beducated.com. That's Beducated, B-E-D-U-C-A-T-E-D.com and use code PRIVATE. The link is in our episode description. I wanted to lighten up this conversation with a thing that I thought was hilarious. And that's one thing that I think is that I see a lot in this war coverage that I think was captured in my thread a little bit, which is that the sense of humor in the face of tragedy is just ever present and is so, so funny. (laughs) Um, I saw this sign. So basically, Ukrainians are trying to confuse Russians um, oh, on the that's roads. Oh, that's so good. It's so, so they've good. been changing the the direction markers to say "Ruski Karabel Idinahui," which means <laughs> "Russian ship, go fuck yourself." <laughs> which is that reference to the Snake Island defenders who said yes, that. Yes, it's just fucking tight. And I have to say that "Idinahui," you can't understand how delightful it sounds because there's not an equivalent expression. Because nahui means like hui is how we say dick, but in like a really derogatory way. So when you say say idi nahui, you're like go to the dick, but it's like <laughs> but it's like go to the nasty dick, and it just makes me. I just I love it. I I think that's very funny. Let's dive into your thread a little bit more and share some of your favorite memories and things about Odessa and Ukraine in general. So basically, one thing that The thread mostly focuses on Odessa, which is where I'm from. And there's a couple of little facts about Ukraine. I'm going to do more, but yeah, this is the start. 
The thing that really breaks my heart is Odessa is known as the capital of humor in my country. And on April 1st, which is April Fool's, but for us, it's like the day of idiots, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that idiot, drak, like stupid head. I don't know. You guys don't have an an equivalent. Because we have... (laughs) Because we have, we have the word idiot, but uh, this isn't day of idiots. This is, I mean, but you get it. <laughs> but it's like just kind of day of foolery, essentially, but day of fools, I guess, rather than April fools. It's not about like tricking anybody. It's really more about celebration and laughter. So in Odessa, we have really big parades. And the parades are awesome. Everyone comes out. You, like, dress up all crazy, whatever you want. There's clowns. People will be, like, singing, like, hilarious, like, parody songs. They'll be dancing. Dude, there's mimes, okay? I was (laughs) so fascinated as a kid seeing mimes out there just working it. It sounds like a nerdier Mardi Gras. (laughs) It's not nerdier, trust me. Just imagine that everyone is drunk because most of them are. Oh, okay, okay. (laughs) But yeah, and then one of the things that we do is we decorate like statues around the city and stuff like that. So, um, but the most famous statue in Odessa and the very first one is statue of uh, uh, Duke de Richelieu, which is, he's the man that's credited with founding um, Odessa. There's some evidence that it was, I mean, essentially there for about eight years before he got there, but uh, it's debated. And also the reason he's credited with it is because he was a badass and defended the city. Oh. And then like essentially like mayored up and just was really influential and did a lot of stuff. So that's why he gets the credit. So the famous Potomkin steps that you might've seen in the movie, the longest steps ever, they're incredible. You get tired as hell (laughs) going up and down. As a kid, you're like, okay, I went down, but could someone carry me up? (laughs) (laughs) And um, basically, he there's a statue of him, and he has like his hand out, and he's facing the ocean, the sea, the Black Sea. And you just go down the steps, and essentially, like you're right there, the sea is right there. So it's it's pretty cool. When I was a kid, I was told that the reason his hand is out like that is he's saying welcome. Mm. But I, again, no confirmation. I have no idea. Sometimes you get told these things in school or like by friends or by family. And then you're like, I don't know. Do other people think this? Because I looked (laughs) it up and I'm like, I'm not sure that everybody got this this talk. (laughs) But one fun fact about the statue is if you stand facing him, then on the Luke, it's a manhole cover. On the second one from the left, if you stand on it and look at him, it looks like uh, he's He's got a big old erection. <laughs> Not erection, but just like, you know, like. just He's happy like, to see you. He's greeting this city. <laughs> He's got a nice D outline is all I'm saying. <laughs> it's looking tight. Another funny thing about the statue is, and this is just so classic also, my culture, that if you look at him, he does not look anything like the actual guy looked. And you'd be like, whoa, what? Why does he look so Roman? Like, what is happening? And then it turns out that the the sculptor (laughs) was really bad. (laughs) Like, they have it written in record. They're like, he's not good. (laughs) And because he's not good, he just copies Roman statues. So he just copied a Roman guy's face. And he was like, here you go. (laughs) That's hilarious. So, yeah, just so, so funny to me that uh, the entire city is just from the ground up, just built with this, like, sense of humor. I love it so much. And speaking of the sense of humor, basically, the Odessa sense of humor, or Adieski um, humor, it's legendary to the point that it has its own genre of jokes. And the way that jokes are, like, when I was growing up, anecdote is what we call them. Mm-hmm. Sounds like anecdotes, but mm-hmm. I guess it's just jokes, actually. <laughs> so Funny anecdotes. Yeah. And that's kind of what you did for fun a lot of the time. You would be like, hey, do you want to hear a joke about this? Are they street jokes? Is that the deal? Yes. But there's like such a rabid culture of them. I still get memes and stuff and... Uh, my mom sends me stuff and I look stuff up. That's definitely commentary and current events. And it is really fucking hilarious. 
So yeah, jokes are kind of our thing. Anecdote is kind of our thing. And the particular anecdote that are like about Adisite, so if you're a person from Odessa, you're an Adisit. And um, if you're a woman, you're Adisitka. And if it's plural, it's Adisite. So Adisite, people from Odessa, um, the sense of humor is like very, very Jewish because Odessa's always had a really large Jewish population. And so the sense of humor is really Jewish, but it also has like a very, very specific streak of like hustle culture. Ah. And like what I was saying earlier, this optimism in the face of like terrible things. So it doesn't mean that you're Jewish if you're from Odessa, but essentially it's like the way that they say all New Yorkers are Jews and all Italians are Jews. I believe that's a Lenny Bruce bit. I feel like in that way, it's like all people from Odessa are Jews, even though they definitely are not. <laughs> Does it surprise you? Or like, were you like, oh, that totally tracks that Zelensky was a comedian before he was the president? Oh, I already knew it. I'd watched him in his little sitcom before. I know, but when it happened, were you like, oh, this is this makes sense within the culture? Because obviously our reality star president didn't work out so well for us, but... <laughs> Were you like, this is okay. This makes sense. Yes. We really respect artists mm. because, you know, historically being part of such repressive regimes with a limit on free information, et cetera, the voice of the people has always been art. Mm. And this is in every form, but especially comedy, because you can say things as a comedian that you cannot say as a straight person. Um, I guess I would say a muggle. I mean, you can say things that they can't as a comedian. So that's always been important. Same with singers and people like that. That's historically been a way to resist and to spread truth. So oh, I love that. yes, I'm not at all surprised that Zidensky is uh, is a comedian. I mean, I think that's the most apropos thing ever. Uh, social media can feel pretty toxic these days. People are spreading misinformation, they're posting oh-too-perfect portrayals of their lives, and then you get bombarded with ads on top of all of this. Well, luckily, Swell is changing the social game for good. Swell is an asynchronous, voice-based social platform where you can have and host conversations with people all over the world on your own time. If you're listening to this podcast, you already know the power of audio. People become so much more real and authentic when you're able to hear the tone and emotion behind what they're saying. Well, on Swell, you can broadcast your voice to ask a question, share an opinion, or just tell a funny story and connect with a diverse array of people. You can also listen to others talk about their expertise or thoughts on a topic that interests you. If you enjoy listening to podcasts like this one, you will love all the compelling voices and content on Swell. They have stations on mental wellness, real life stories, pop culture, LGBTQIA, and more. And now you can download the Swell app for free on the App Store or Play Store or by visiting swell.life slash podcast. Again, just download the Swell app. That's S-W-E-L-L by going to www.swell.life slash podcast. That link is in our episode description. Swell. Keep talking. Are there any especially poignant memories that you have from your childhood of being in the city? Yeah, I have a lot of really vivid memories. It's one of the most beautiful cities in the world. I have to say that whatever it is that you're picturing when you close your eyes, when you think of Odessa, is likely not even close. I encourage you highly to Google some photos because I think you'd be amazed. One of the things that's one of my most poignant connections is I was a ballet dancer from the time I was like, you know, a little kid. It's very cliche. I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> For when I was like three or five, I know you were going to be like, she's going to say figure skating or ballet. <laughs> you are right. So um, I did ballet and I went to ballet school and, you know, ballet school is really intense. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> But you'd go like five to six days a week since you're a kid. And like, you know, three of those days would be like regular ballet. One day would be like 
характерний танець, which is like a character, like народний танець, or whatever, like um, more like indigenous dance of Ukraine or whatever kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And then you would also learn music theory and piano. So between all of those, that that's training to just become a ballet dancer. So I would do that all the time. But the reward for that is that I get to perform in a ballet and the opera house in Odessa. And if you Google Odessa Operni Teater, which is opera house, you will be stunned. It is one of those gorgeous buildings in the world. Mm. And inside, it is spectacular. We were always told growing up, and I don't know why this is like the fact that the, we were told, but they would be like, it's oh, the number yeah. two it's most gorgeous. beautiful opera house in the world after Vienna. <laughs> I don't know who makes the rankings, but that's what I was told. The inside is insane. I mean, the outside too, but whoa, that place is gorgeous. Isn't it beautiful? Yeah. Some of my fondest experiences would be uh, rehearsing on stage there when there would be, you know, obviously no audience. The only people there would be us, the ballet dancers, And before it was full tech with an orchestra, which is incredible too when there's no one there. Sometimes it would just be the piano player and us. And then depending on which number they would run, we would get to go and watch. And we would go to what's called Karolevskaya Loja, which is the king's box, mm. which is the nicest, fanciest box in the whole theater. That's like dead center and high up with a perfect view. So as kids, essentially, when it wasn't our turn to rehearse, we would all go up and crowd up there and, like, eat our sandwiches and watch from above. Oh, These incredible ballet dancers practice to these incredible orchestra players. It's, like, wonderful music. And the ballet was Bambi. (laughs) (laughs) You're probably picturing Swan Lake. Sorry, bro. (laughs) I did not make it up that rank. I was too little. <gasps> But I was a bunny in Bambi and I fucking killed it. So That is so cute. But yeah, it just, it, it really, you can't imagine how magical it is. And if you ever see a performance there, it is just truly special. It's one of the most beautiful buildings and it feels like when you're in a place that has history. It just feels different. I love that. So Odessa also has really beautiful trees everywhere that lines so many of our boulevards and stuff. And our like most beautiful old streets like Diribasovskaya have cobblestones. So the kind of vibe that you get from Paris, mm. you definitely would get there. And we also have a lot of really cool statues and parks. The city has wonderful, beautiful parks. And one of the my favorite parks to go to when I was a kid and that has some of my favorite memories was Park Shevchenka, which is one of the people that I mentioned in my thread as being one of the Ukrainian authors that it's totally worth learning the language for alone. Taras Shevchenka, he's an incredible poet and just highly recommended. So I always loved going there and knowing that it's his park. Aww. Just huge, huge fan. There's also a giant food market that we're hugely famous for. It's called Privoz. And you go and you walk around and people are selling all this homemade feta that they make themselves that's different, like levels of saltiness and brininess. There's a million different kinds of fruits and vegetables and you just walk around and taste everything. They have like a million kinds of like kalbasa. They have I mean, I know, Courtney, you're a vegetarian, but sorry about this. But they have blood sausage. That's really good. <laughs> they have trucks sometimes. Like when I, was a, <laughs> when I was a little kid, they had a truck that was full of tiny, tiny baby chicks. And you could hear them from far away because you would hear a truck going, like a huge, huge truck going, and you're like, what is that? So, of course, I beelined for that. It was, like, the coolest thing I'd ever seen. And, of course, I asked if I could hold the baby chicks. And they were like, yes. And it was the best time of my life. And I asked my mom, could we please take two baby chicks home? And my mom was like, we live in a communal apartment. 
<laughs> where we share um, the bathroom and the kitchen with an alcoholic old man. <laughs> and you have to lock your door when you come home from school just in case. So maybe not. Like, I don't know where we're going to put the baby chicks, but I was already holding them. So That's she so you, dude. could not say no. And we ended up getting two baby chicks that lived in our shared kitchen. Oh, you got them? I did. <laughs> Claudia, what a pushover. <laughs> I know. You cannot square that with who she is now, right? She was so soft back in Ukraine. So, yeah, she just could not say no to me. So I had two baby chicks um, in, in that place until they got chicken pox. Oh, my God. Can you fucking imagine? No. And we had to give them away to live on a farm, or at least that's what I was told. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, uh, we had chicken wings that night and we were tight. <laughs> so if you don't know what communal apartments are, basically during communism, you don't like choose where you get to live. You essentially are like assigned a place to live by the government and you can't really like move. Uh, the only way to move is if you put like an ad in the newspaper and you're like seeking two room apartment in this part of town trading for two one-room apartments, one in this part of town and one in this part of town. And then hopefully you, who is, say, a person who's getting married and wants to live together with your person in a two-room place, has to find someone who is, I don't know, splitting up or <laughs> for oh some God. reason leaving a two-room place so that you can trade your situation for another situation. Yeah, so that is the vibe. And that is why in a communal apartment that we shared with this man, like we didn't choose him. If you're like, why would you do this? No, it's not really a choice. <laughs> so that um, hopefully sheds a little bit more of a light on um, what it was like to live in USSR. So interesting. And Odessa is like a million people. Is that right? So I'm not sure what it is now because um, it, there's been over 500,000 refugees. I don't know how many people are um, leaving Odessa, but I know that some people are staying, some people are leaving. I don't, I don't know what they stand at now. So I was mentioning earlier the Odessa sense of humor, and I just wanted to do the most classic joke about um, people from there, which is, is it true that Odessite answer questions with a question? Who told you that? <laughs> just classic us. So that is the genre of um, Odessa humor. I also want to say that Odessa has some of the most wonderful swimming because the Black Sea is really warm and calm. It's not like this dumbass L.A. ocean that is killing me. <laughs> I'm tired of yelping like a tiny little puppy <laughs> when I try to swim here. And the waves are really powerful. So if you ever want to have the most amazing beach vacation. I know you didn't think about it, but Odessa is your place. Um, maybe give it a few months. <laughs> no, right, right now. Book your <laughs> ticket. Book right now. Oh, and Odessa has like our thing is seafood. It's a port city. So we just go crazy for seafood. You can find any kind of fish prepared any kind of way. But especially we love pickled, salted, there's like smoked, there's half smoked, half salted. The variations are truly endless. Like you will not believe that that is all of the ways that you can preserve fish because <laughs> we uh, have truly cornered the market and maybe Japanese people, I don't know. I feel like they might be giving us a run for our, our money. But my favorite fish ever that I crave all the time, it's these little tiny salted fishes. They're called um, tulkie. And they're pretty much like, I don't know, like a slim finger size. Sardines? They're not. I look them up and like, they're not very common. And then someone else told me that they exist here. But what they said about them, when I looked them up, they were prepared um, not in a salted way. They were prepared and like fried. And I'm like, no, that's not the same thing. Uh. So when I looked up what they're translated to, it said... It's the Chernomorska Karspiska Tulka, which is the Black Sea Sprat. What's a sprat? Sprats and sardines are different species, although from the same family. 
Sprats have a stronger and meatier taste than the fishier sardine. So um, now to zoom out a little bit and talk about Ukraine. So just a couple of tiny things. So yeah, in case you haven't seen on social media, the Ukrainian flag is the stripe of blue over a stripe of yellow. Um, what you might not know is what it represents, which is blue skies above fields of wheat, which I always thought was so beautiful. And it's because Ukraine is known as the breadbasket of Europe. And one of the ways that sometimes Russians have dismissed Ukrainians is just being like poor farmers, you know, just kind of the working horses for the more like, oh, we're the artsy, fancy Russians. And like, you guys are bullshit. Like, not bullshit, but like, you're not important. We're like a higher class of person. So that accounts for a little bit of why um, now Ukrainian people are increasingly choosing to speak Ukrainian and not Russian. If you look at statistics for language in Kiev, for example, the use of Ukrainians rising rapidly and the use of Russian is getting lower and lower. And that has been happening for a while. The study I looked at was in 2006, and they were only about 5% points away, which, like I said, is unusual because most Ukrainians speak Russian and not vice versa. Yeah, demographically, um, it's not working out for Putin. You would think that attacking Ukrainians would make it so that your language becomes more popular <laughs> in their country. <laughs> but, but you would actually be wrong. And the fact that those acts of provocation and terror and all that shit that Putin's been trying to do, that is not going to do what you want. That's just going to make independence rise. That's just such a stupid maneuver. You know what was actually heartening to me in some perverse way, but when I read the statistic that two-thirds of dictators are usurped by their own allies, like their own elites that they rely on for support to maintain their governments, that's how most dictatorships end, so. <laughs> yeah, I told Courtney, I was like, uh, also Russia really only has two levels. <laughs> it's either, hey, we're ruled by a dictator or, oh, we killed our dictator. <laughs> so really just the two levels. And occasionally there's maybe half a second where we have someone good. Uh, and then, of course, they are also killed. <laughs> I mean, so. I just hope his friends are like, hey, you're fucking with our money. You know, we don't need a nuclear war that's not going to help our yachting. Can you take it down a notch? Okay. So, so fucking stupid. I also wanted to give it a little bit of context for that sunflower quote that people have been seeing oh, yeah. everywhere, which is that Ukrainian woman saying to the Russian invading troops, um, here, put some sunflower seeds in your pockets so that when you die here, flowers can grow. Yeah. So I don't know if you might not know this, but um, the sunflower is the national flower of Ukraine. So oh. that is what she was really trying to say. It was extra badass, actually, that, then you realize. Interesting, making a statement about independence, too. Mm-hmm. Because um, she could have said any other fucking seeds. Nah. This bitch was particular, so good for her. Uh, there have been several old Ukrainian people that I'm like, fuck yeah, they're like signing up to fight or saying, you know, shit like that. If my grandpa was still alive, he would fucking wheel his wheelchair on over to a plane and <laughs> go back and volunteer for the war. And they'd be like, sir, you have a pacemaker and you can't walk. And he'd be like, give me a fucking machine gun. <laughs> I used to kill Nazis. Give me this shit. But yeah, and the other thing about the flag is, so because it was like considered to be an insurgent independent flag. It was illegal to fly it. It was illegal essentially um, in the USSR. And another thing that I said that the reason, like I said, Russian was the de facto language in, in former USSR countries um, for a long time. I said like every, I said every uh, USSR country, every Slavic country, what I should have said is 
like every Slavic country because Romania is the one exception. You know, it is hard to have a nuanced conversation on the internet. And that is why I'm really glad we got a chance to have this conversation and kind of talk a little bit deeper about all these things. Because yeah, if you don't make exactly the right word choice, people are coming for you. Yeah. And especially, I mean, I feel glad that so many people saw the thread because it clearly struck a chord with them. But it also means that you're overwhelmed by responses. And of course, you know, one, I'm I'm tweeting in the middle of like a very traumatic time. But it's also... You know, you can fact check everything and slip up and do one or two words off or something. And then people are like, you are out here to misinform us. It's like, that's not even what I'm here to do. Also, I'm a comedian. I don't know. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Well, I guess I can't say that anymore because that motherfucker is a president (laughs) and a war fighter. So I know it's a whole new precedent. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Voladimir. They're raising the bar to a level that cannot be met. Yeah, there were some other tweets like that. And one guy that was like, I'm concerned as a Ukrainian Jewish man that this this is setting up unrealistic standards for behavior. (laughs) It's it's really true. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Sophia, for sharing your homeland with us. Courtney, thank you so much for letting me... um, basically just enthusiastically blabber on about a place I love very, very much. I hope it made it real for other people. Well, let's all pray for peace and pray that this oppression is stopped and this brutal takeover. Let's pray for people that are affected by this conflict on both sides who do not want to be part of this war. And let's pray for people that are affected by conflicts around the world. Amen. So, Privates, if you are in need of some lighter content with all that is going on right now, you can check some of our recent episodes. We've been going hard at our Mind Trip series. Uh, We've released four episodes in that series, including an episode all about my first ayahuasca ceremony that gets pretty vulnerable. We also did an incredible episode, if I do say so myself, about the history of vibrators. That is a super fun romp through the ages. So check those out. And if you want to follow us for more content about this stuff or other stuff like sex and travel and things that we give a fuck about like Ukraine, but other conflicts and other resources, please follow us at Private Parts Unknown on Instagram and Private Parts Un on Twitter. And obviously, Soph is going to keep posting about Ukraine. Soph, what's your handle? It's the Sophia, T-H-E-S-O-F-I-Y-A. And I'll be over here posting whatever dumb shit comes to my mind. If you want to follow me, I am at Courtney Kosak, K-O-C-A-K. And of course, make sure you're subscribed to our Private Parts Unknown newsletter because we are going to have an edition that gives resources for Ukraine and other conflicts. So make sure you're signed up. It is privatepartsunknown.substack.com and you can check the link in our episode description. Hey, Sophia, what's that bomb-ass music? This music is by our dope friend, Amy Rosh. You should check her music out on her website, amyraasch.com. This episode was mixed by Mike Castaneda from Plastic Audio. We Michael, I would protect you in a war. Hopefully it doesn't come to that. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> and of course, we want to shout out our social media queen, Holly Brown. She is on Instagram at Holly Brown Comedy. She helps us with social media and our newsletter and a lot of other stuff. So thank you, Holly. And she has an amazing stand-up show. You can check out more info at Salty AF Show on Instagram. And now it's time for the review of the week. I have recently discovered some very sweet reviews on CastBox. So I want to read one from Songbird. And the comment is, love this podcast. I'm an asexual, non-binary person, and the show has been a really valuable resource for thinking about sexuality in positive, respectful, joyful terms following some personal trauma. 
The celebration of various folks' journey of self-discovery in terms of gender is just more to love. Keep it up, and I would love to hear you talk about ace folks sometime. It's not necessarily about wanting to have sex. Shout out to my horny ace friends. That's a good idea. Yeah, I actually have been noting all the ace people that I've been coming across because, yeah, we definitely need to explore that more. Thank you so much for such a thoughtful review. Yeah, thank you, Songbird. We will sing for you. La, la, la. (laughs) All right. This has been our love letter to Ukraine. Thank you so much, Sophia. And we will check you all next time. Bye. Bye.